0: Hey, my name is Cindra Kampoff and I'm a small town Minnesota gal, Minnesota nice as we like to say it, who followed her big dreams. I spent the last four years working as a mental coach for the Minnesota Vikings, working one-on-one with the players. I wrote a best-selling book about the mindset of the world's best, and I'm a keynote speaker and national leader in the field of sport and performance psychology. And I am obsessed with showing you exactly how to develop the mindset of the world's best so you can accomplish all your goals and dreams. So I'm over here following my big dreams and I'm here to inspire you and practically show you how to do the same. And you know, when I'm not working, you'll find me playing Miss Pac-Man. Yes, the 1980s game, Miss Pac-Man. So take your notepad out, buckle up, and let's go. This is the High Performance Mindset. Welcome to episode 379 with David Eccles. This is your host, Dr. Sindra Kampoff, and thank you so much for joining me here for another episode of the High Performance Mindset podcast. If you know that mindset is essential to your success then my friend, you are in the right place because every week we discuss a new topic related to mindset. And today we're talking about the importance of rest in our ability to be high performers. Now, we started a Facebook group where we'd love to connect with you and share with you more behind the scenes of the high performance mindset, more tangible strategies and inspirations and free prizes like books and t-shirts, so, if you have not already, head over to Facebook and just search for High Performance Mindset Podcast. And I can't wait to see you over there. Now, today's episode, I interview Dr. David Eccles. And I've read some of his research and was really looking forward to having him on this podcast for you. Now, David Eccles' research concerns the psychology of skilled and expert performance and its development in real world domains such as performance under stress. And it ranges from sport to law enforcement, from medicine to the military. He is an associate professor of psychology at Florida State University. And he also serves as an associate editor for the journal's research quarterly for exercise and sport and is on the editorial board of the psychology of sport and exercise. Now, David has been the recipient of approximately $5 million of external funding to support his research some of which we'll talk about today, including the Department of Defense, the National Science Foundation, and Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. In today's episode, Dr. Eccles and I talk about the importance of rest to performance. What exactly is deliberate practice? We talk about ways to cognitively detach so we can actually rest, how to get high quality rest, and some. Good recommendations on that, and ways to prevent burnout. And I think this really is an essential time where we have to take care of ourselves, where we're focusing on self care and rest is definitely part of that equation. If you are on Twitter, you can find Dr. Eccles at David W. Eccles and me on Twitter at mentally underscore strong. And if you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and you can tag me at Syndra Campoff or you can connect with us over on Twitter at the handles I just provided. But thank you so much for sharing this podcast that helps us reach more and more people each and every week. And if you haven't already, head over and leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening. If you are on an iPhone, for example, all you have to do is scroll up on the episode and there is a place for you to provide us a rating and a review. This week's rating and review is from Lewis18. He had just listened to episode 362 of Justin Grunewald and he said this, I just listened to episode 362 and was so inspired by Gabe's story. I love this podcast. Thank you so much, Lewis18. I'm so grateful for your rating and review. And again, wherever you're listening, head over and just leave us a rating and review. That would help us reach more and more people each and every week like you. Without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Eccles. Dr. Eccles, I am really excited to talk with you today on the High Performance Mindset podcast. How is the weather in Florida today?
1: Uh, In fact, I was going to um, tip you off there that we might get uh, disturbed because we're due for some big thunderstorms. It's been thunderstorming on and off today, and uh, as usual, it's about mid-80s thunderstorms in the afternoon. (laughs) We're about
0: 60 here in Minnesota. That sounds Uh, nice. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. A few days ago, we were 40. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm looking forward to talking with you about your research and just helping us learn a little bit more about how we can be the best version of ourselves and the importance of sleep and rest. And we're talking about deliberate practice today. But I want to start about this idea of your passion. And so I'd love for us to start uh, this interview with just telling us a little bit about your passion and what you do right
1: now. Uh, this is a great question. So, uh, you know, you sent me these questions in advance and uh, you know, two or three of them have, have led me to think disproportionately about you know, what, what, what that actually means. But so that it's been a great exercise. It's therapy in itself. Um, <laughs> so obviously, I have my larger life and my work life, and, and and you know one of my passions in in my larger life is 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 my family definitely, and um, it's been a, a fascinating journey to to have children and see them grow. So that that without doubt is at the the top of that list. I um I always remember Lenny Briscoe from uh, Law and Order, uh, uh, trying to explain to Chris Noth's character that there are two types of people in this world: people with and without children, and you know when you cross over into the children territory, it's a whole different world and so that's definitely a, <laughs> that's definitely a, a passion. Um, on the work side, I think you know his biggest view version of it is, is, you know I'm passionate about sort of thinking through thinking through problems and concepts that relate to human performance, and particularly trying to trying to identify where certain gaps are in our understanding okay, and, and doing new work in those areas it's to, to sort of try to understand the things that we currently don't understand and, uh, and do some research on those things and then attempt to disseminate that research to the level of practice so then it, it, it's useful. So those are the sorts of things that, you know, in all the different parts of my job, uh, I enjoy doing, uh, enjoy interacting with our, our students in relation to those things, of course, as well. But I think most academics would say at the heart of what they're passionate about is is that thinking. Sometimes the uh, the, the writing and the, the publishing, uh, uh, you know, throws up a few challenges. But but it's, it's first and foremost, I think, the thinking about those things and discovering what others uh, have done in research in relation to those things. And and then what's missing and then trying to create some of those dots, which is the creative part, of course, to, mm-hmm. to move us beyond where we are currently.
0: So tell us a bit about how you got to Florida State.
1: Um, so right from the get-go in my research, um, my research has been influenced by um, Anders Ericsson, who you know, <clears throat> historically has been one of the most uh, cited psychologists uh, in recent history, and be- because of that, when I was finishing my, uh, working on my PhD at uh, Bangor University in-, in Wales in the United Kingdom, I, uh, you know, began to send papers off for publication and so on. And it-, it was reasonably clear through the review process that, you know, a key reviewer was was Anders Eriksson of some of my early papers, and so we already began to establish a relationship there. And so it was quite natural <clears throat> towards the end of my PhD. And I basically wrote to him and said, do you, do you have any jobs? You know? <laughs> and uh, and at the time he was on sabbatical at uh, Stanford and he didn't. So, but he said, hey, I've got somebody down the road here who I knew vaguely from the literature, Robert Hoffman, who works for the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition, which is a standalone research institute now in the state of Florida. I think there's only a couple of its kind, actually. And so he's looking for a postdoc. you know. So we, we got talking, Robert and I. Uh, almost about the time 9-11 occurred, weirdly, you know, the the original 9-11 occurred. Uh, And as soon as I could fly, he he flew me over for an interview in Pensacola, Florida, uh, where the Institute is. Um, A lot of their uh, contracts were connected with um, the Navy and and, um, and so they were located there in Pensacola. So I went over there and and worked on expertise projects there on on military grants. And then, uh, but while I was there, and his return and we kept up this uh, dialogue and um, he invited me to, to FSU, you know, to give some talks and things. I met a bunch of the other expertise researchers, Neil Charness and, and Gershon Tenenbaum in, in sports psychology. And then before long, they, they, uh, I got a nice uh, offer to, to come there and, uh, and I started there as a assistant professor at FSU. And then I worked there for about a decade or so, had an extended sabbatical back in the UK, where I never really lived as an adult. So it was kind of fun to go back and live for a little bit as, as an adult. But um, again, one day I got another email saying, hey, there's a job back here. We, we'd like you to come back to FSU. And uh, so I reapplied for the job and, and we, we came back then as a family to, to Florida State. Uh, but it's been a relatively natural fit because Anders is been here all along, and it's had, um, you know, always had a strong uh, um, PhD program. In mm-hmm. fact, the PhD program is the same age as me, and and uh, it is scary to think in two years that's going to be half a century. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so you know, well, we'd had this nearly fifty-year established PhD, and and uh, there was an expertise group here in psychology department. And it was a big R one university, well resourced, and, and all those nice things. So, it was it's always been a relatively natural fit.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll talk more about um, Erickson's work as we keep going. But you know, for those people who are unfamiliar, um, his seminal research on deliberate practice and how you develop expertise is you know really has contributed an incredible amount to you know so our understanding in those areas.
1: Yeah, that that one paper alone. Ericsson Cramp-Teshrom in 1993 about deliberate practice and its role in the acquisition of expertise has been cited more times than my total number of citations. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and yet, Anders has, you know, about a dozen other papers like that. So uh, <laughs>
0: right. yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, it's definitely been influential, you know, in so many domains, in, including, you know, very diverse from, from medicine to the military to Uh, to sports psychology, yeah.
0: So before we dive into the research you've been doing, Dave, I ask every one of my guests to define what failure is (laughs) to them and to tell us about a time that you failed. And the reason I want to ask you that question um, is to kind of normalize failure, Mm -hmm. um, but also for us to learn a lesson that you've learned along the way. So what do you think?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. This was the question even more than passion where i had to think you know that is so hard to answer and you know i, I try to catch myself and and say you know how do i answer A- am i trying to answer in ways that are ego protective that's the first okay. thing that you know and and i really try to think through and i don't think i am when i answer this but it can sound like it so i'm, I'm trying to uh, you know prime prime the response now uh, in in the audience here but I think when I look back and and try to identify things I think are just abject failures, that the first thing you think you have to realize is that in any failure situation, there's more than one thing involved. Um, The sociologists always remind us as psychologists that we tend to focus on the individual and the individual brain and forget forget about the various other structures, the environment uh, and society and all those things that are around us. In fact, the evolutionary psychologists, um, the uh, ecological psychologists, would do the same. It remind us it's not just about the person. The person has, you know, limited agency, and the other thing we need to consider is the environment. So, the first thing I, I think, I, you know, I thought about was that, of course, <clears throat> the, the explanation usually for <clears throat> something we might label as failure involves both the person, their point in time, and the situation. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the context. So the yeah. context itself contributes to failure to the point where the person might think they failed, but w- what was happening actually is that they just weren't in the right place at the right time and the right situation. Ah. And the easiest, <clears throat> the easiest way to, 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 to think about this is if you flip it. Okay. There's a classic critique of, of history uh, okay. called, called great man history. Where we'll focus on somebody like George Washington and say, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a great, great man there, you know, and um, admittedly, you know, it also includes um, uh, women much more, but but it's called great man history uh, critique. Okay. And the thing is, we, we never really know whether somebody else would have been better in George Washington's situation mm. because George Washington was in that situation. And mm. yes, there was undoubtedly competition, natural competition for the role he served, and you take somebody else, Churchill, whoever it might be, Charles de Gaulle in France, but, but the point is, they were given an opportunity to show great leadership by the context they were in.
0: Yeah. And
1: if, if they had a very mundane time of things, they would never have been seen as a particularly great leader, because not much happens to really challenge their leadership, right? Right. And so it's the same with failure, that something that looks like a failure may be as much a product of the environment and the point in history as the person. And so I think that's the first thing I thought about there, is that that's what I think failure is, its an interaction between those things, uh, rather than just point to the single person and say, you've, you've, you've failed. The other thing is, I wonder whether, you know, there's a uh, and this is going to sound much more like a standard psychologist's response about failure now, but, it, but I think it is simply a phase. So when you feel you failed, I think it's genuinely a phase, um, a process,
0: okay.
1: uh, usually of recognizing sometimes that some of the things I talked about, there's perhaps a mismatch between you at this time and the timing and the situation. Mm-hmm. And A a student was just talking about this in our group dynamics class that she had been on a a team where she actually attracted the the label that you may know from the literature of a team cancer. Sure. She was a negative um, sort of spread negative affect amongst that uh, among that team and had and and acquired that label.
0: Okay.
1: And we know uh, at least we think from our our theories of of uh, role modeling that uh, you know over time you acquire that label. Other people have to label you that, label you that, the role senders and so on. Um, and when she transitioned to a different team, no problem. She, she never had this label and seemed to actually be the good guy. And and she realized that uh, the the fit for her on that particular team at that particular time. Um, just just wasn't quite right. There was some mismatch between who she was and what the situation was at that time. Mm. And I think that, yes, you can do things that are just blatantly do not serve your interests, right? You can, to to lead to this failure point. So I'm not taking the agency away from the individual. You can absolutely do things that do not serve your interests that are genuine mistakes, and you must reflect on those and, and think forward. But I think often what's lost is that um, this is a phase you may pass through, uh, and, and as much is to do with the circumstances and the timing as anything else. So you, you may appear to fail completely under one set of circumstances, but thrive, you know, a year later under exactly the same set of circumstances. Yeah. So I think there's some 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 argument there. So I thought about that for a while. So when I thought back to things that. I might be able to point to okay. where I've been either unsuccessful in you know I don't know romantic relationships or in in jobs that have been given or in um a family relationship somehow um I'm, I'm just not sure even though those are the obvious ones to point to say they, those are failures and I've got a few of those no, no doubt um were they actually failures did I did I actually fail there? Yes, probably there were some steps I could have taken better, but I think there were just—it's just a phase, like anything else you, you you pass through that you you can learn from genuinely, um, and it's just another set of circumstances. And you know your personal mental state at that time may not be one that you feel is favourable. And now I'm going to sound like the resilience guys here uh, and girls, but that's not necessarily failure right um, th- those are the those are the processes through which one passes to move forward, so I, now i 'm going to sound like the growth through, through adversity people I know but uh, anyway that 's how i i, I uh, that 's the point I came to, and the reason that you know the answer is long there is because the thought chain is long because when I try to point at something that I felt was clearly a failure, um, often I think um I genuinely benefited from the process, you know. Right. Um, I think, you know, one of the other things that's worth thinking about is that societally, I think we all imagine, and, you know, there are plenty of critiques out there about this, but we're going to be gloriously happy all the time. You know? uh, I mean, it's in the, it's in our uh, fabric of our, and I'm an American citizen as well, it's in the fabric of our society that we should be pursuing happiness. Right. And I think that we forget that these affect, negative affective states and, you know, negative emotions that trouble us uh, are wrong. And uh, I'm not convinced that they are wrong. I think uh, they serve functions like any other emotion that position us to move to a different place in the future. Yeah. Uh, Clearly, this doesn't explain why, obviously, some some people are chronically affected negatively in certain ways. Why don't they appear to go on and thrive? But, um, of course, they may consider that they're thriving anyway, I don't know.
0: Well, um, Dave, I really appreciate that answer to that question. I know
1: it was a long one. But you're no, it's good.
0: Again. It's <laughs> good. Well, and, and it makes me step back and think that is a really hard question to answer, but it is. I mean, isn't that interesting that it's a hard question to answer? Like, what is failure? <laughs> you know, uh, but I had never considered that the situation when I had thought about failure before, and as you were talking about it, I thought about myself about times that I feel like i failed and maybe it just wasn't the, there were these factors in the situation that didn't allow me to thrive. Right. And I think by viewing failure as understanding or a product of the time and the situation, it also like takes the personal out of it. And I think so many times when we fail as athletes, as practitioners, as people, you know, it's like we can let it, um, uh, negatively impact our confidence, but if it's like we see it as a time, you know, that this this really like um, it's a phase, it's a process, it's more, it's about the situation. I think that also helps me be not so hard on myself.
1: Yeah, and it is a classic critique of the whole of psychology that too much agency is given to the individual brain, um, and um, and so you know, and in society that that's definitely propagated that that concept so if you do fail it's your fault and uh, uh, and of course um you know the critiques of psychology is and the science of the individual uh you know are that actually the individual only has so much agency in their situation and there are plenty of structures around them that can explain a lot of what happened to them
0: yeah yeah uh, so here's a few other examples of when I've asked this question. So Michael Gervais, who, yep. uh, finding mastery podcast and works with the Seattle Seahawks. He said, failure is anytime I'm not being authentic.
1: Okay. Yeah. Very
0: good. Uh, I interviewed Jack Canfield who wrote the chicken Soup for the soul series. You oh, know, yeah. Those yeah. Books. He said, failure is simply a delay in, in results. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Jim Aphromau said, I look at failure as just not showing up. So I think it's so interesting that, you know, that, so what I would encourage people who are are listening is to think about how do you define failure? Mm -hmm. Maybe how do you want to redefine failure? You know, I, I shared an episode ago, a couple of weeks ago, where I just talked about these different ways people have defined failure. But, you know, what is the definition of failure that you want to guide your life and maybe redefine it? So thanks for, for answering that question. Let's dive in, Dave, to your work now. And um, what I want to ask you first about is like, you study rest and sport, and I think that's such an important topic, one that gets really overlooked a lot, um, mm-hmm. and one that we don't always see as important to performance in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about why you think it gets overlooked and just generally how you started to study it.
1: So I actually started to study it uh, once again because of my interest in these developmental and training frameworks that we have including the deliberate practice framework so at its at its simplest uh, the deliberate practice framework uh says at the day level of, of, of training that that you should focus on your very highest quality uh practice
0: yeah
1: and when you're focusing on your very highest quality practice. You're not simply going through the motions, you are fully concentrating on improving some specific aspect of performance. And because you're fully concentrating, and in sports that involve physical movements, often you're fully exerting yourself physically as well. The time that we can fully exert ourselves, you know, physically and mentally and devote ourselves to improvement is very short. In Mm. fact, the rule of thumb, uh, extracted from Erickson's original work, is that that is about four hours. Really, okay. really useful work. The
0: four hours of every day.
1: The four, four hours of work that genuinely advance you, change uh, the structures of the brain. Okay. Um, you know that that meet the proper criterion for learning, as we would outline it in, you know, uh, any of the learning sciences that semi-permanently change the operation of the brain to some new level requires uh, this very high level of concentration. The de- tasks are invariably uh, demanding, more demanding than your current level, not so demanding that you know, you simply withdraw effort, but more demanding than your current level. But because you're concentrating b- very hard and exerting yourself physically, you've got four hours there mm. in, in, in 24 And in addition, and so the rest of the time, the other 20 hours um, must be devoted by comparison to relatively restful activity uh, for the system to be able to reset so that you can reinvest in these four hours the following day. And then the theory of deliberate practice then says, or the deliberate practice conceptual framework then says, if you do that, you'll outcompete the opposition because you've maximized the quality of the training during the day and maximized your chances of recovering to engage in that same quality training the following day. And therefore, because you can keep engaging in this very high quality training, you're going to outcompete others because they either don't engage in the four hours of quality practice to start with, or even if they manage that, they then don't devote the other 20 to relatively restful activities so they're able to re-engage the following day. And so over time, the person who does that will out-compete the other person, right? Right. So so then when you look at the the practice conceptual framework as it's been applied to sports, and um, uh, for example, a a review in 2014 did this, they found something like, I think it was 24 out of 25 studies that had retrospectively uh, assessed uh, experts in a, a sport compared to less skilled performers to see uh, according to their self-reports, uh, which has its limitations, but according to their self-reports, how much deliberate practice over time they were engaging in. Okay. Um, on the average, in those reviews, uh, people were engaging in you know, more uh, deliberate practice, not per day, but over time, they were able to engage in more of that. And so many of those studies have focused on the practice itself. And then they started to try and focus on the microstructure of the practice. So they say, okay, during those four hours, when we look at elite, you know, uh, uh, athletes or those on the traject- trajectory to becoming elite, when we look at the four hours, you know, what are they doing? What is the nature of that, the activities? And this has been going on for you know, 20 years in this type of research, uh, up to that review in 2014, for example. And um, but nobody has been asking. Well, hang on a minute. Central to the theory is also this other 20 hours where they do more restful activities. Hmm. What does that mean? So they've been studying the practice itself, which is natural to do. Right. It's natural to think the practice is the route forward, but forgetting the fact that equal, equal in this theoretical proposal is not just the high quality practice. It's effectively high quality restful activity. So what does that mean? And so the more I looked around, yes, there's work on recovery, lots of work on recovery, but it tends to focus on physical recovery more than mental recovery. Mm-hmm. And it tends to focus on recovery strategies like ice baths and taping and these sorts of things. Right. When I try to look for um, understanding what mental recovery, and mental recovery is always important because even if you're performing a physical activity, to get better according to the theory, you've got to still be fully concentrating. So if you're running routes as a, a receiver, You've got to be fully concentrating uh, to maximise the quality of that practice session. If you turn up and you're just half in it, right? Your, That's coach, like your coach is going to recognise that. Your teammates are going to recognise that, and so on. Right. So mental recovery is still important, even if you're performing a physical or movement-based task. A few people have asked, so mentally, what, what's restful? You know, um, does it mean that you can't? leave practice and sit doing you know algebra what what are we talking about what is it that what is it that you know football players do and what is it that they might do better Mm -hmm. when they leave the field to enhance that that mental recovery and so we look around in the research literature and we see a few things a few insights from cognitive psychology and those sorts of things so there's for example, an emerging finding that if you in a kind of skill acquisition session, like learning a a new receiver route, when you finish the session, if you're able to then engage in in about 15 minutes of relatively low cognitive activity. So you're not, you know, uh, you're you're taking a, a shower on your own, or you've got some quiet time where you can sit on your own and not think about too much and, you know, perhaps rehydrate or something like that versus you know, get in a one-on-one with somebody else in the locker room or take a difficult phone call, uh, then recovery, then um, learning will be enhanced for those people who had spent that 15 minutes post-skill acquisition in a relatively low cognitive demanding environment. So we had a few insights like that. So it basically means if you have just, and you as a working for a university for example if you've just been in a session where you're learning something new about structural equation modeling don't immediately come out and switch to something equally demanding take yeah. 15 where you do something uh, relaxing and the theory is it, it allows memory consolidation you see so so these are some of the insights we got from, from the literature but my question was a little bit i suppose more driven uh, by the sort of applied level, by, by real people doing real things, uh, we set out to actually just ask athletes, okay. what, what does rest mean to you?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, uh, and we literally started with that question. We didn't even put mental rest. We said, what does rest mean to you in our studies? Uh, and I'll give you, we came up with what we thought were, were six key things. from those okay. I'll, I'll give you the first one, which is what you asked me a question about, this idea of detachment. Yes, that's actually a term from industrial and organizational psychology, but I think fits very well on the answers that almost to an athlete were given, which was sometime not thinking about my sport, right, because Because I do that, you know, all all of the time and particularly for student athletes. I live with them. I train with them. We're on social media all the time and the beginning of season, or beginning of preseason, is kind of fun. Two thirds of the way through the season, they would normally say, "I am sick of hearing about hockey or football or whatever it might be." Right. And I want a day where I just don't hear that that word. I mean, almost to the point where they would say, "I don't want to see uh, a hockey pitch or a hockey field, or I don't want to see a soccer ball for a day," you know, because uh, I don't need any more of this. I love my teammates. I love them, but I need to be without them for a day. <laughs> because, you know, I'm going, I'm going crazy here, you know. Yeah. And, so, um, and so that was one of the findings, this rest meant an opportunity to stop thinking
0: okay.
1: about my sport for a while. And that has a basis in you know, industrial organization psychology where the focus has traditionally been on workers. Not that athletes aren't workers, but uh, in more traditional jobs. Where they are unable to stop thinking about work when they go home, which leads to maladaptive strategies like, you know, drinking half a bottle of wine to try to get your mind off worrying about something at work, you know. And so, yeah, we we definitely saw that amongst the athletes, even student athletes. Uh, They were in high-performance programs, and the pressure was on them, and they're worried about keeping their place, and they're worried about their performance, and they live with their room, you know, teammates, and so. It's just a sport, 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 sport all the time. Fun at the beginning of the season, not so fun two thirds of the way through the season where, you know, it's starting to get old. So that was, that was one of the insights we okay. got there.
0: So um, Dave, I got a quick question before you keep going on. So like this idea of cognitive detachment, I think is really uh, powerful. And I think about how it relates to the, some of the athletes I work with also like, my my own family like my husband's a school principal so right now really stressful time when he comes home he doesn't want to think anything about work you know my brain and i can't quite turn it off like that but do you have like from your research with athletes or in general like how often should we cognitively detach, you know, or is it just kind of, is it personal? Like, you have to figure that part out. Tell me a little bit more about, like, what you would recommend.
1: Well, I don't think we know a huge amount about individual differences in that.
0: Okay. That I've looked,
1: like, c- can some people just keep going and never burn out, you know, right, uh, never get psychologically demotivated and feel emotional exhaustion or any of those things. Um, I, I but I doubt whether that's true for anybody that they're just immune and they can just think about their work, you know, all the time. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but, um, so I think everybody needs it, whether some people need more than others, quite possibly. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's typically been studied at the day level. So how much and how often do I need to be able to psychologically detach after work? And then does that predict Uh, my feelings of recovery the following day. And typically, if you are able to psychologically detach at the end of the day, at some point each day, there's, you know, a relationship with feeling more psychologically recovered and and, and motivated the following day. Um, You know, the the question is then how? How is that possible? And there's a a few insights. One is that what what people seem to ruminate about most after something, you know, after, say they've done a team scrimmage and they go away or they're learning some new skill technique or whatever and they, they go away. What they tend to ruminate most is, is about things that they feel they haven't been able to do successfully in that session because um, it worries them, usually because, of course, there's some kind of implication for whether they start or their performance and, and so on, right? Um, and so one of the applied implications that, at least in industrial organizational psychology, seems to have some um, effectiveness is to, uh, after work, if those things you are ruminating about, take 15 minutes and make a plan about how you're going to address those things the following day. Uh, There's something about writing down those concrete, actionable steps you're going to take to try and address those things, that once you've done that, you feel better about it. Like you feel like you can switch off a little bit more. It's cathartic, you know?
0: Yeah,
1: for sure. Uh, and if you don't, otherwise you tend to ruminate and then you do that 3 a.m. wake up where you'll still ruminate about it because it's not down and concrete what you're going to do to begin to try to, to, to address that problem. It's difficult to switch off. Um, the other one we found from the athletes, so that's from IO psychology, industrial organizational psychology. With the athletes, what we found is what they'll try and do is do sort of two things that go together the first one is they'll try and focus on something that they can be immersed in that isn't their sport that's inherently enjoyable okay and now that is a wide range of things and that is personal so that might be watching you know something you're really into on netflix through to walking the dog through to going going for a jog
0: Okay.
1: whatever is able to effectively Switch you to the another subject so that you're not focused on on your sport or on the thing that's you know you're ruminating about, so achieving that shift in attention appears to be important okay and, and so that can be done by engaging in this other thing, whatever it might be that you like, that um, you can Im- immerse yourself in um, and you know it's got to be something that the person chooses. the coach can't prescribe a set of activities you know, in a blanket way, because of course, that feels like they're still doing their sport, right? They've been told to do something. So the second thing relates to this a bit, because second thing is about avoiding cues that remind you of your sport. Okay. Now, by switching to this other activity, of course, that achieves that, but there's some other things you can do. And so some of our athletes, and these are college athletes, and I was quite surprised by this, they'll actually say that if they got, you know, equipment, uh, team shirt, whatever it might be, they'll put it away in a closet. And so, because even just looking, you know, after lying on the bed, relaxing, looking around the room, they see the stuff, accuse them to think about their sport. Sure. They'll also try not to, this is almost impossible, as we know, connect with social media to be reminded about their sport. (laughs) Always very tough. Um, And they will also not go to the training venue So this is one of the other problems. All all their buddies are at the training venue or hanging out nearby it. And so there's a tendency to want to go there, even on your day off or your time off, because your buddies are hanging out there, Right. but you're back at the same venue. You're doing the same thing. You're being reminded about. For a while, not hang around with your teammates. They're your buddies. Hang out with them for a bit on your rest day. But for the rest of the time, uh, you know your other friend on your corridor as a student athlete who happens to you know, do chemistry and is not an athlete, hang out with them for a while. Uh, athletes say, I have to say, I'm actually interested to hear about chemistry because it's not hockey. Um, and so uh, of each of these things, try to avoid these cues to rethink about your sport. Uh, you know, avoid the places to do with your sport, avoid the people to do with your sport, avoid connections to people through social media to do with your sport. Uh, so there was quite a collection of those things. And this is not to say any of these athletes didn't love their sport. They loved their sport.
0: For sure. But
1: they didn't like, didn't like it 24 7, 365. There came a time where they're like, I just need to think about something else for a while.
0: How do you know when you have to sort of detach yourself? Like, are you, do you think it's, um, as people are listening, is it sort of like something you do every day? Or, or are we not really sure on kind of
1: the recommendation there? That's a toughie. Uh, you probably have to do it. Pre- prevention is always yeah. a bit harder than yeah. than, than then identifying
0: right.
1: uh, symptoms of when it's going wrong. So prevention has yeah. to, you know, as as everything in life, uh, prevention has to come well before. And the trouble is, you have to sort of prevent that happening when you're not uh, in any environment where you're getting cues that you need to do the prevention because you're not there yet but unless you do it you're eventually you're going to be feeling burned out right so the easy answer is to say when you start to experience the symptoms of burnout so the classic one is sport devaluation you just don't value your sport in the same way you used to at the beginning even just the beginning of the season you just yeah yeah i could give or take it to be honest um So devaluing of the sport, feeling of emotional exhaustion, like, I'm just tired. I'm just tired of dealing with all this team crap, you know, and all the drama that goes on and tensions. And, you know, I just, I've had it with that. And we know after an off season, you're like, yeah, bring it on. But by two thirds of the way through the season, I, you know, so emotional exhaustion, um, I'm supposed to know these three as a psychologist, (laughs) sports evaluation, emotional exhaustion, and I can't remember the last one off the top of my head. But those are the symptoms of burnout. So I think, you know, if you start experiencing those uh, sorts of symptoms, and the key is consistently, of course. Right. Not just like the end of a tough week, but after a weekend on a Monday, you still feel like that. Um, then you definitely need to, to engage in that. But the problem is to prevent the onset of those symptoms. And they're quite they're slow to come on, Burnout symptoms and the burnout syndrome is slow to come on but unfortunately it's slow to turn off so you have to wait you have to be resting for a long while and wait for that feeling of like i don't appreciate my sport very much anymore to go away right so i think prevention is still better than trying to cure and i think yeah a daily routine of trying to make sure you have some other interests it's not sport 24 7 we have another study going on at the moment with nfl uh, athletes, actually, uh, players. Okay. And, um, you know, we, we, we've we had we had one player say, no, 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 you know, even when I'm not uh, um, at the uh, facility, I'm still um, watching football games because, you know, if you're not fully into the game of football, then you shouldn't be doing it, you know? And I uh, thought, so, oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like he wants to be involved in football 24-7. But as the interview progresses, he talked about his team, at a point in time, not making the playoffs. And he was like, well, you know, I'm disappointed, but that opens up next weekend, you know? And, and I, I've been wanting to go away for a while and, um, and, and do a little bit of traveling, so I, I, I'm gonna take some time off next weekend. And I was like, oh, but I thought you wanted to do 20, football 24-7. Uh, and so clearly, you know, there was still an appreciation there, even though his team did make playoffs <laughs> the following weekend. You know he could do what he wanted so um yeah um, that's a great yeah.
0: example so dave i one question i'm thinking a little bit about for those mm-hmm. people who are listening is so we need to get away from our sport i'm also thinking about like getting away from work to prevent right feeling burnout or exhausted or devaluating what devaluing what you're doing yeah. what about recommendations for rest so this idea of like you can only do you know four hours of deliberate practice but you have these 20 other hours, like how often should we rest? What are some examples of what we should do when we're resting?
1: Well, I mean, I I gave uh, some of them. I think what they have in common are that they are distracting from task A. They do distract you to something else. Um, I think that it's useful if task B is something you're genuinely, intrinsically motivated to do.
0: Okay.
1: But this is something you do, you know, those things we, get your day off. And they can be really obscure. We interviewed a coach recently, okay. uh, a very high-profile D1 coach, because we also have a coach study who talked about he was interested in a particular type of music. Okay. And he insisted, once again, that he just worked all the time. And, uh, and if, you, if you didn't like working all the time, being a D1 coach wasn't for you. And then spent disproportionate <laughs> amounts of time telling us about how he traveled around uh, seeking out this type of music venue. And they were like, oh, you know, that doesn't sound like your sport. But um, so I think, you know, but, but that music was related to his, his upbringing and was also something very personal and dear to him that yeah. probably had connections to family and, and environment, you know, um, his, his community. And so he was going to go away and uh, uh, do those things. So I think genuine intrinsic motivation to, to want to do it. Uh, the third thing I think, particularly at the day level, So not talking about the off-season now, but just talking about end of day, is that it is useful, of course, if it's not particularly cognitively demanding. Okay. And so, you know, lots of people have talked to us about, you know, walking the dog and things like that, because you can just sort of relax in your head, you know, be in your own head and relax. And so, you know, many Netflix things are like that, and um, perhaps reading a, a light book for fiction, I've got a Jack Reacher novel that i i dip into that is quite fun um other examples listening to music is a another one a lot of people like jogging even if yeah. they're athletes jogging but jogging for as long as they want and at the pace they want and that's usually pretty mild pace and usually through somewhere nice
0: yeah
1: uh, round the uh through the blossom pink blossom trees there in washington dc if you lived in washington washington or you know, through campus here on uh, Florida State, you know, somewhere that you is just genuinely nice. And, and we know, of course, about, you know, submaximal endurance exercise that, of course, that's the kind of exercise that tends to make you feel nicest in your head when you're doing it. You know, So I think those are the things that have in common, they distract, you're intrinsically motivated in them, you can be immersed in them, and that they're not particularly cognitively demanding. So they give to give the brain a bit of time off.
0: I think those are great like points to make as people are thinking about how do they rest, how can they rest more distracting from the task at hand, intrinsically motivated, not cognitive demanding, and something that you can be immersed in. So let's go back, Dave, to yeah. when we we're talking about deliberate practice and give us a sense of like, is there anything more that you want to say about the rest? and how it contributes to deliberate practice and like why it's essential
1: well it's essential because um, you know we, we, we're systems with finite resources and, and so if you are going to do your best work invariably that requires you know sort of maximum attention uh, and the system just can't sustain that for very long you know it, it's a uh, it's entropic uh, you know uh, uh, if, if we really perturb the system by pushing it uh, the system wants to pull back and try to maintain homeostasis, right? Try and reset energetically and including mentally. So, if you're really exerting yourself for those for those four hours, if you're right in the middle of trying to master that new receiver route, or trying to master uh, um, you know the, the new part of that language you're learning, or trying to master the new series of n- notes. in a a musical production or as a business operative trying to really understand how the changes in your state have affected the legal system and you've got to know that and it's requiring maximum concentration you're not going to be able to do that for very long and so you've got to both recover from that but also protect in advance those four hours so one of the things I say this to my students a lot one of the things that it's it's difficult one to, 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 to sort of combat is this kind of cultural um, you're virtuous if your schedule is packed you know if you're incredibly busy you're just generally a virtuous person you know this, uh, and um, and I would argue that actually put on your schedule some some restful time and call that a meeting so you still feel virtual a uh, virtuous uh, but make sure you rest a little bit in advance in of, of trying to prepare for this very cognitively demanding four hours of deliberate practice in, in the day. So you both need to prepare for it and recover from it. Uh, so goes the theory anyway. And uh, But it's those things, it's those four hours that are going to move you forward. So even if you pack your day with 10 hours of relatively mediocre work, you know, you dip in and out of the law journal, you know, every half an hour as a business person, you um, you may simply not know very much at the end of the day. But it's that time where all of us know where our head is down, we're in a quiet location, and and it hurts, doesn't it? You know, that's the other, one of the other characteristics of deliberate practice is that that process in the moment while you're doing it is actually inherently unenjoyable because you're struggling yeah. mentally. Like, I've read this sentence four times, and I just I just don't get it. Right. I just don't get it. And you've got to step back and think through it and make some notes and go back. Mm-hmm. And it's inherently unenjoyable because it's inherently frustrating and challenging because you are changing those connections in your brain. That's what's happening. And that, that is a, a process the system resists a little bit because it wants to conserve energy. So you've got to get beyond that. But once you've done it, you've then got to have the period where you, you recover from that. That's excellent. exactly what the, the, the theory asserts, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, excellent. You know, what do you think about, you know how Malcolm Gladwell in his book yeah. kind of popularized, I think to the, pu- to the public, yeah. uh, Erickson's work about deliberate practice, and he said that it takes about 10,000 hours or 10 years to become an expert. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Anders uh, was at pains uh, after that to, to, to sort of uh, distance himself from that hard rule Right, um, But in most research, it, it seems to be particularly where there's some kind of competitive um, environment, right? If you decide you're going to be the expert in standing on a fence post, you, you might, you know, you might do that pretty quickly. But if you're in a, a field where there's genuine competition, you want to be a football player or, a, <clears throat> you know, business person, then because you've got the competition, the standards of performance are forced up and the preparation period is going to be longer. And when we look at those sorts of fields, Uh, those people who are recognizable as experts do appear to have have engaged in thousands of hours of this deliberate practice. Now, right now, I'm just actually revising for for the for the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action, a paper paper on uh, deliberate practice with one of our master students and Mark Williams uh, from University of Utah. And um, we were great pains in that to say that, of course, what this doesn't mean is doing more practice. um and so that's one of the misconceptions sometimes about deliberate practice it's just out practicing somebody else now over time over years it is about out practicing at the years level it is about out practicing them but the problem is people begin to think that at the day level and so they they'll they'll make a schedule where i'm just going to do 12 hours of Mm. basketball practice and then within a few months of course they're injured or or they're just disenchanted you know not motivated anymore. And deliberate practice kind of says the opposite. It says, if you want to accumulate these thousands of hours over years, you've actually got to do less, and it's going to be useful practice. You've got to do less practice at the day level. You've got to do the highest possible quality practice, okay, but not very much of it, and then recover. And so, you know, the message that sometimes gets... gets um, miscommunicated down to youth sport is that if I stay longer than you, I'm going to be better than you. And it, you know, it tends to be tied up with some machismo as well. You know, I'm going to outwork you. And, and in fact, um, uh, the, the theory actually says the opposite at that level. It says, you know, uh, uh, structure practice so that it is, you know, at its highest quality, and goal directed with useful feedback uh, attempts to push you beyond your current levels, Challenges your weaknesses rather than just uh, repeats your strengths. Because uh, there's a tendency, of course, if we're, particularly when we're young, to, to, to go out and just do the things we're really good at and yeah. try and ignore the really weak bits, but challenges the weaknesses uh, and so on, you know, uh, to maximize the quality of the practice. And you shouldn't be able to do more than four hours of it in a given day anyway. anyway. And the four hours actually isn't a block. Uh, the, the other part is that Um, and these are rules of thumb, of course, nobody knows for sure, but the rules of thumb are no more than 80 minutes, uh, without also some rest injected in there and no more than four hours in 24 hours, Hmm. uh, is, is the sort of rules of thumb extracted from the original work. Um, yeah.
0: That's so good. Uh, well, Dave, I want to thank you so much for this thought provoking conversation. (laughs) I have read quite a bit about deliberate practice, but I learned a lot, <laughs> and good, I learned a lot about um, rest and the importance of rest. And what I'm going to do is uh, work to summarize our conversation. So, <laughs> wish me luck. <laughs>
1: well, we, and, uh, uh, I, I definitely recommend some some post some post podcast session Netflixing to you know fully get your rest in at that end, and I'll do the same here.
0: I was thinking about what am I gonna do tonight to make sure I rest. Exactly. <laughs> I did not think about work and uh, so I appreciate that. But we, we first started talking about failure and I think your definition of failure is awesome and really unique in that it's like it's a product of the moment and the time, right? That you're in in the situation that it's more of like a phase or a process than something that I think you need to take personally. Um, So I really like that perspective and just how deliberate practice can only happen for four hours. This 18 minutes where you need a break, that's, that's powerful. And like what actually deliberate practice is. And then you talked about what are you doing on this other like 20 hours, right? And we talked about cognitive detachment, which is not thinking about your sport or what you're doing. Um, And if you do, we actually talked about rumination and like writing that down for you know, taking 15 minutes to write down whatever you're thinking so that you can release that from your mind. Mm -hmm. But just this idea of especially to do this, use cognitive detachment when you're feeling burnt out or or exhausted, or that you're not valuing your sport like you used to. And uh, then at the end, when we were talking about rest, and, and how do we find what makes us rest, right? Mm-hmm. And you said, like, something that distracts you from the task at hand, mm-hmm. that involves um, intrinsic motivation that, like, you want to do it, you personally want to do it, that you can be fully immersed in it. And that's not cognitive demanding. Yeah. So thank you so much for your wisdom today and sharing uh, your research with us. How can people reach out to you um, and uh, get, get a hold of you, if you with you or of you if they'd like to learn more?
1: Uh, so they can do it by, via email. so that's uh, D Eccles at um, FSU.edu, Florida State University um, And of course they can Google me to find that email address as well. And of course, uh, uh, follow me on Twitter. And I'll do the same. So that's at David W. Eccles on Twitter. Um, those are the two key mechanisms, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but please do. Uh, always interested to hear from, from folks. So uh, yeah, be, be, be very welcoming of that. And thank you very much for your time. Um, this is definitely a great mechanism to you know, disseminate some of the stuff we do at universities and, um, and look out for the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action article, which uh, should emerge in the next few months uh, that tries to nutshell some of these things. The, the, the guide from the editor is that you should be able to, on a short bus ride, glean something genuinely useful from it if you're a coach uh, or, a, or a mental performance consultant so or an athlete. So um, that's the acid test there. Can you get something useful from it in a short bus ride? So hopefully that will do that as well.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Dave. I really enjoyed talking with you and thanks for sharing your wisdom today on the podcast. No problem.
1: Thanks for your time and best of luck with the podcast.
0: Way to go for finishing another episode of the High Performance Mindset. I'm giving you a virtual fist pump. Holy cow, did that go by way too fast for anyone else? If you want more, remember to subscribe and you can head over to Dr. Cindra for show notes and to join my exclusive community for high performers, where you get access to videos about mindset each week. So again, you can head over to Dr. Sindra, that's D-R-C-I-N-D-R-A.com. See you next week.